Hello, everyone, and welcome to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler free. With me, your host, Aaron White. This week, I've got a couple of films to talk about, one of which I was very anxiously awaiting, and the other I was nervously, reluctantly waiting to see. We'll get started with the first of those two. That movie is Asteroid City from Focus Features. It stars Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, Lee Schreiber, Hope Davis, Steve Park, Rupert Friend, Maya Hawk, Steve Carroll, Matt Dillon, Hong Chow, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, Jake Ryan, and Jeff Goldblum. Woo! Yes. Everybody is in this movie. It is written and directed by Wes Anderson with a story by Wes Anderson and Roman Coppola. Cinematography is by Robert Yeoman. Music by Alexander Desplat. And it is edited by Barney Pilling. It runs 104 minutes and is rated PG-13 on appeal for brief graphic nudity, smoking, and some suggestive material. What's it about? The itinerary of a junior stargazer slash space cadet convention organized to bring together students and parents from across the country for fellowship and scholarly competition is spectacularly disrupted by world-changing events. As a quick note before I get into the full review, I did want to mention something about that rating of PG-13 they did originally receive an R rating and they appealed and which is very rare were actually granted a lower rating of PG-13 but the brief graphic nudity that it does mention is a very quick full frontal nudity shot of one of the female characters so just wanted parents mostly to be aware that that was in there if they are going to take their children to it and that's something that's concerning they need to be able to make that choice with the knowledge of what this brief graphic nudity entails. No sex, no simulated sex acts involved. It's just an artistic shot from afar of a, of a naked woman briefly. Okay, I am most drawn to Wes Anderson's stories that are relatively straightforward. Point A to B adventures. Those allow me to connect with characters in a way that this film's nesting doll style meta narrative just could not accomplish asteroid city is very deeply layered it is about a tv show that is broadcasting a play within a play kind of so at various times we see people playing both an actor and the character that actor plays and while these transitions are managed in a way that i never was unable to keep track of, the effectiveness of them felt often diminished on me. For me, at least, I think this is the kind of film that perhaps I'll enjoy more and understand the intent of better if I view it with full context of who its characters are from the very start. But that being said, the further I get away from seeing it, the more empty I feel when it comes to thinking about it and its emotional impact. So. Maybe not. The characters, of course, as always in a Wes Anderson film, are incredibly quirky and expertly performed by an all-star cast. It seems like anyone 
will show up just to drink a cup of coffee and say one line in a Wes Anderson movie. He has that rare kind of respect in the industry. The play in this film, titled Asteroid City, after the small southwestern desert town which they all converge upon, tracks how people interact while attending the 1955 Junior Stargazer Convention. And it references pretty much everything that it was a big deal happening in the 1950s. American literature, space exploration, atom bombs, the decline of the American West, etc., etc. Five young budding science prodigies are there to present their inventions to an astronomer and a United States government group that will give one of them a $5,000 scholarship. Also, there are a young school teacher in her elementary class, a famous actress, and a widowed war photographer. The latter of the two being parents of space cadets who end up forming their own sweet but really melancholic relationship. Now, a major event takes place that forces all of those involved to kind of take a deeper look at their place in the universe and confront some of their individual grief. It's a heavier film than a lot of Wes's work, but it is pretty consistently amusing at the same time. Smorchman plays Augie, the widower war photographer. He has three young daughters who pretend to be witches, and then his son is one of the primary space cadets that we focus on. Johansson plays Marilyn Monroe-esque icon, and her daughter is also a space cadet who forms a relationship with Augie's son. They are by far the deepest characters, and their own budding relationship mirrors that of their children. We get a lot of really great scenes between the two of them, especially ones in which they are in their individual cabins in this town, but able to see each other through their windows and have a conversation. They have enough moments together that are both comedy and genuinely touching, and they they seem to change over the course of the story, and they end up as different people than when we first meet them. A big part of this is probably due to how Wes writes in the backstory for their actual actor selves, which they pull from while performing their characters in the Asteroid City play. I know that probably sounds confusing, but it's not nearly as hard to follow as you might expect when you're actually watching the story. Most of the characters, however, only seem to exist for Wes to present famous people saying or doing something humorous together. Steve Carell has some ongoing jokes. He runs a little inn or the cabins. He sells them or rents them, I should say. And he also has several vending machines that he is using to make money one of which is a running gag on a martini-making machine, and another which is selling deeds to land in this asteroid city, small town area. There's a lot going on in the film, and each and every character has its own kind of unique, curious, and interesting little trait, but most of them 
that's all there is to define them. And there's just nothing deeper. There's also no real propulsive energy from scene to scene, unfortunately. So when we do have a good moment, then oftentimes there will be kind of a fairly boring period after that that doesn't really move the narrative or the character development forward at all. And it's also pretty nihilistic, which seems kind of at odds with the colorful and bright presentation in a way that Anderson fans might be surprised by. Stylistically, I was glad to see Anderson back with a more pastel-infused palette. You expect the symmetrical and detailed production design, Alexander Desplat's score, the costumes, and the cinematography all to be exquisite, and they are. It was a delight to spend time in Asteroid City itself. The real world the stage actors inhabit not nearly as much, but in the end, I simply yearned for something more meaningful to come out of the experiences all of these people were going through. I wanted so badly to feel something and just didn't. You can look at this from a high level and the craft is undeniable. But Wes really tried to cram too many ideas into this and it just lost me along the way. Asteroid City is available now in a few select cities and will be available in theaters everywhere on June 23rd. Now for the film that I was nervous about, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny from Walt Disney Studios Motion Pictures. It stars Harrison Ford, John Rhys Davies, Karen Allen, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Antonio Banderas, Toby Jones, Boyd Holbrook, Ethan Isidore, and Mads Mikkelsen. It is directed by James Mangold and written by Mangold, Jez Butterworth, John Henry Butterworth, and David Cope. It is based on characters by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. Cinematography is by Feden Papa Michael. Music by the legend John Williams. Edited by Michael McCusker, Andrew Buckland, and Dirk Westervelt. It runs a whopping 154 minutes, and is rated PG-13 for sequences of violence and action, language, and smoking. What's it about? Archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. Oh, where to begin with this one? Anyone who knows me well understands my deep love for the treasure hunting and exploration adventure genre be it movies or video games. I've got Indiana Jones, Nathan Drake, and Laura Croft stuff around my house and on my walls. And I really wanted to believe that James Mangold, a director who almost never misses for me, could recapture some of that old magic and not just churn out another uninspired studio sequel like Spielberg's first ill-advised resurrection of the character back in 2008 was. But that's just not the time we live in, folks. Anything and anyone that people have liked in the past, and heck, sometimes stuff that people haven't really cared that much about, is ripe material to revisit, remake, and resell. Does that mean that I think Indy and the Dial of Destiny is a completely hollow studio franchise picture? No, not quite, but it's certainly not anything special, and though it avoids being a complete failure, I was heavily disappointed in the result. 
if you'll remember Crystal Skull, sorry, I know that probably is a haunting memory for many of you, but in that movie, they brought back Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood. They established her as Indy's one true love and the mother of his son, and then gave him a happy ending as a family man. For Dial of Destiny, they ripped that right back away from him, making him a sad, estranged husband. Due to the story reasons they made up to account for why his son, played by Shia LaBeouf in the Crystal Skull, couldn't be back for this movie. This whole thing kind of really frustrated me greatly. Because while I won't spoil the ending, there is definitely an ongoing hope that Indy will reunite with Marion because we know that's what is best for him. That's what we want for him. Yet here we are in the third film that she gets to be mentioned in or appear in and never are they actually spending a solid amount of time in the movie happy together. It's just a weird choice overall for the arc between those two. And I didn't feel satisfied by it. And I felt like it kind of did Indy wrong. The movie actually starts off in the past with a big set piece that introduces us to the titular dial of destiny it is a device made by the ancient Greek mathematician Archimedes that supposedly could predict the time and location of fissures in time, allowing for time travel, basically. Hitler wants it, and so does a German physicist named Dr. Voller, played by Mads Mikkelsen. He's fine. Usually, he is a standout, exceptional part of every movie that he is in, but I'm sorry what he was asked to do here just never felt like it was elevating the material. Indy and his buddy, Basil Shaw, played by Toby Jones, also want another artifact that they're initially searching for, but come to take on the Dial of Destiny. Anyway, a lot of very poorly CGI'd action takes place, including a disturbingly creepy moment of Indy's shadow running across the top of a train in the distance, which looked like a really bad stop-motion animation scene. And ultimately, this whole part of the movie sets in motion the events of the present day, and that's where we will spend most of our time. Years later, Indy is reunited with his good friend Basil's daughter, Helena, also his goddaughter, who he calls Wombat, which I don't think was ever explained, and is a very strange nickname. She is looking for a piece of the dial, because there are two, you see, as well as a map of sorts that must be found, because we need a reason to search for multiple things in multiple places. Also hunting it is Dr. Voller, but he is using some other name now, and apparently he is recently responsible for helping the U.S. make it to the moon. But no one knows he's a Nazi, except us, and Indy. The rest of the movie is, of course, an adventure all about whether or not they will be able to get both pieces of the dial, complete it, use it, and if so, what will happen when they do. Phoebe Waller-Bridges is really pretty wonderful as a kind of antagonist slash ally back and forth, and her relationship and banter with Harrison Ford was the most enjoyable part of the movie for me. It all builds up to a really bonkers and ridiculous climactic act that 
once again, like Crystal Skull, proves that trying to go big with your visuals and scale just isn't the best choice in this kind of story. Despite being on pretty uneven footing for most of its runtime due to feeling like nothing we haven't seen before, this really did tank the film considerably at the end and makes a horrible attempt at melodrama as well, which is a choice that hinges on us believing something about Indy that no one who has watched all of these movies with him would ever buy. It is just something that happens that feels so out of character and they play it up to be this incredibly important moment. And I was really frustrated by it. But my biggest complaint is with the spectacle. It looks bad, plain and simple. Anytime there is action, not a single scene is as good or interestingly shot as anything in the original trilogy. Almost all of it includes bad CGI that makes the action feel cartoony and look very fake. The characters often are clearly on a soundstage somewhere and not at whatever location out in the world the movie is trying to make us believe they are. I can't stress enough how much I miss the practical effects and the on-location filming that was a staple in the original trilogy. Movies like this are at their best when you believe in the stakes of being an adventurer and you feel the majesty of the traveling from place to place and discovering things. And then there's the whole de-aging issue and, and the struggle of making a face look young when the body movement can't really match it. I actually bought young Harrison Ford's face pretty well, more so than some of the people that were in the screening with me for sure. And it concerned me because it was believable enough to me that I started wondering why they needed him in the first place. What's going to stop Hollywood from pumping these out once actors pass away if the deep fake technology stuff gets good enough? Older Harrison Ford availed himself as well as he possibly could, honestly. And it really is still a joy to see him suit up and be Indiana Jones. But there are also plenty of times where you really have to suspend disbelief. Moments like him taking out numerous well-built goons in a fist fight. And you just gotta laugh at this point, because you know how old he is. My other big issue was simply that all this film did is play like a greatest hits album. Adventurer looking for famous relic that their father was obsessed over his entire life, driving him essentially into craziness. Check. Nazis. Check. Sala cameo. Check. Bringing a whip to a gunfight. Check. Young child character who Indy starts to care about during the adventure. Check. Vehicle during a chase scene getting stuck between two walls it can't fit between. Check. Being surrounded by a large number of creepy crawlers. Check. Need to get away and oh, the barn has a perfectly placed motorcycle. Check. It happens over and over and over again, constantly calling back to moments from the past. It doesn't even attempt to stand on its own as a new adventure. And that is my primary problem with how Hollywood treats nostalgia in general. Indiana Jones is an amazing character. And 
and a mythical Greek dial that was created from high-level mathematics and may or may not allow for time travel is a pretty cool idea for a plot. Why do we have to go back to Nazis again and go through the same plot beats all over? Shockingly, despite all of this, I didn't hate the movie. I enjoyed it more than Crystal Skull by a bit, primarily because of Waller Bridges and the young aforementioned kid played by Ethan Isidore. They just worked so well with Harrison Ford, and, and I, there was enough relic searching to keep me intrigued. But two and a half hours is a tall ask for something this repetitive with this poorly shot action scenes. And if I'm being a little extra critical on behalf of one of the greatest characters ever invented because he deserved a whole hell of a lot better, so be it. Uh, P.S. John Williams is innocent. His wonderful music still gets a rise out of me every time I heard some variation of Indy's theme. So that was extremely nice. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny will be available in theaters on June the 30th. Well, that's it for this week on FF Plus. As usual, hopefully, I've given you some information that will help you make your decision on what to go see. And as always, if you do see one of the movies that I have discussed, please find me on Letterboxd, find me on Twitter, find me on Facebook. And tell me what you thought. I'd love to talk about it and hear what you agree with, what you disagree with. Hopefully something here connects with you better than it did for me because I came away from both of these just much more disappointed than I really was hoping for and kind of bummed out. You can find links to all of my social feeds in the show notes to each and every episode. And if you are enjoying Feelin' Film, by all means, please be sure to give us a review, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you possibly can. I'm actually going to start reading reviews, so if you want to get on the air a little bit, drop us some kind words, and I will start reading those during these episodes when I have them to shout out. Thank you again for listening, most of all. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filled.